now they're making Ghostbusters with only women. What's going on? Shut up and sit down. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on Earth. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lips. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. I'm calling for an immediate investigation into Russian interference and collusion uh, with the Democratic Party after the elections yesterday. It's not, it's not, it's not, it's not right. Hashtag not my house of representatives. <laughs> <sighs> Tell us how you really feel. I'm so tired. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be fun. Um, hi, guys. It's Barstool Politics. I'm your host, Nick McGuire, joined as always by Dr. Bill Muck from North Central College and Dr. Phil Barker from Keene State College. And we have Dr. Suzanne Chad with us to go over this cluster that happened last night. Oh. Oh, I Our midterm specialist. It's not just about women this time. It's about Congress, too. Oh, we're going to talk about the women. <laughs> we better. <laughs> Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, before we get started, typical stuff. If you guys like the podcast, um, have questions, beer suggestions, comments, anything like that, um, want to see what we're up to, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul, Facebook at Barstool Politics. Uh, beers that we try, you can find on the Untapped app on iOS and Android. Uh, the podcast itself, you're listening to it, so I'm hoping you're able to find it. Uh, <laughs> iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play Music, Stitcher, most major podcasting platforms. So share us, like us, review us through there. Good reviews, please, because we only like good reviews because we're good. We're like the we're apparently the best political podcast um, with uh, the with with Barstool in the title. That's that's what the Twitter says. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a huge feat. Congratulations, guys. I'm so proud of you. We're going to keep stealing those bar yeah. sports listeners, I swear to God. Um, oh, and then, yeah, the, the big stuff. Um, last week we were talking about Predict It uh, and some of the races to watch. If you guys weren't here, uh, we partnered with Predict It, which is a real money political prediction market, pretty much a stock market for politics where you can buy and sell shares in future political events. Uh, what's great uh, for our listeners is that uh, Predicted is offering a special promo. So when our listeners open up a new account, uh, you'll receive up to a $20 match on your first deposit. So if you uh, open an account with $20, you'll get uh, $20 in free money to use on Predicted. 40 total dollars. That's 40. Good four deal. zero, Not 14, 4 zero. That's a thing. That's a thing. Yeah, so um, definitely check check it out. Um, like I said, we were watching some races pretty closely. Um, I guess there was so many people, or there were so many people that were using Predict It last night that it crashed the system, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's bad timing, but it's great to know that people were using it. Yeah. So maybe don't crash the system next time, kind but like definitely Obama check Care. it out. <laughs> yes. Kind of like that. Yeah. Kind of like yeah, but less at stake. Yeah, I mean, they also wanted to keep your money, yeah. so yeah, it worked out perfectly. <laughs> what do you? Yeah. What do you mean less at stake? I lost like ten bucks last night. Oh, Phil. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I did. That's, I a did. Sh- that's a real shame. <laughs> Would and, you rather use your health care? I'm just asking. 
And then next week, we're going to have Will Jennings from Predict It on. And so he's going to talk to us a little bit about the process. And I, I will say just as a to preview, there has been a really fascinating online discussion between Nate Silver at 538 and some other political economists who are trying to figure out what is the best method for predicting elections. And uh, predicts it does does surprisingly well compared to some of the big fancy models. So yeah. it's the sometimes Nick the people know best. Yeah, Nate Silver is not having it. No, mm-hmm. there was there was a, there was some Twitter war going on. Oof. So we'll we'll talk with Will about that next week. Yeah, um, but yeah, we're pretty much going to spend the entirety of this episode going through the midterm. So if you guys were looking for something else, I suggest you turn this down for a while. <laughs> we'll, we'll give you some Jeff Sessions, but you got to wait to speed round. Oh, God, that <laughs> was don't, a don't, good don't. development. Yes. Um, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. So, all right, the voters were angry, my friends, and we find ourselves at it with a divided government. Democrats harness their anger toward Trump to win control of the House and at least seven pivotal governorships, including Wisconsin, Michigan, and Colorado. These Democratic candidates, many of whom, uh, many of them women and first-time candidates, were propelled <laughs> by support from voters in the suburbs, once a stronghold of Republicans. At the same time, an equally angry group of Republicans expanded their control of the Senate and elected Republican governors in Ohio, Florida, and likely Georgia. The results appear to have reinforced the deep divisions that have defined American politics in the era of President Trump. There are many fascinating storylines coming out of last night's elections, and don't you worry, we're going to break them all down. We're going to start with a big picture. That's good, Nick, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Give, give, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> And then we'll we'll start big and then we'll dive into the weeds. Suzanne, why don't you start us off with your reaction to the elections and uh, political developments? Oh, I mean, I I don't even know where to start, right? There's so much. So I was talking to Bill this morning. You know, what do we want to talk about? We have trends. We want to do a little bit of everything. So I I sent an exhaustive list and bolded the ones I thought were the most important. (laughs) And then there were a couple that were not in bold. So it's hard to narrow it down. I think a couple of things. One is that turnout was extremely high. So even though there were some typical trends we see in midterms of who tends to turn out more than others. There were a couple of differences, but turnout went up about 30 million votes. So in some ways, it looks a little more like a presidential election, which is interesting as we look two years ahead. Um, Young people still didn't turn out more than normal, which was a little disappointing, but we'll take wins when we can get them. Um, Other than that, I think some of the things we know are still true. It's harder for Democrats to win statewide races. Um, Not not necessarily for governor, I should say, win Senate races. Harder for women and people of color to to win Senate races. So that's still the same. Um, But suburban, the suburbanites, they they're they're the thing now. Right. I mean, these were you see white suburban voters in cities around uh, suburbs around major cities broke for Obama in 08. Went a little Romney, a little Obama in 12, broke for Trump in 16, came back to the Democratic Party this year and propelled the Democrats into the majority in the House. So I think that's one of the most interesting trends. The exit polls on that have been fascinating. And I have plenty more, but why don't we start there? <laughs> that's good. <laughs> for me, it was fun to watch, or fun and dramatic to watch the returns come in because Phil and I were texting last night, the early early in the evening when the Senate, I guess it was a lot of the, the East Coast polls were closed and we were getting some early Senate numbers and you were seeing a lot of Republican success and you could feel the air out of the Democratic balloon just like, <laughs> right? And then, you know, predict it and 538, all of them, Phil, you were sending me these, this data, like suddenly yeah. the, the everybody thought the Democrats would take back the House and then it went to 50-50 and then everybody's like, oh, they're going to lose the House. I mean, it, yeah. it, it was so dramatic how quickly things shifted yeah and really yeah it, it you could feel um 
Yeah, and it, and it turned around just as quick. Yeah. Right? And that was, you know, you and I were talking about how early on Republicans were doing well. But I, you know, we, when we were texting, it was this, it was the South, right? Yeah. And that was, so the, you know, the suburban, some of the stuff you talked about, Suzanne, the suburban voters, um, one of the things that stood out to me was the, the education gap has, has grown. So yeah. like uh, whites with a college education went democratic, right? And it was, it was, mm -hmm without a college education of some college or less um, that went Republican. Um, those trends were, they carried out across the country except in the South. So the South is still this kind of different thing. And so all those returns early on looked really good for the Republicans. And then as, as we sort of shifted further West, um, the Democrats picked up some, some steam and, and you kind of felt the, the, um, the, the attitude change. This is one of those elections where everybody got something they wanted, right? I mean, that in some ways, you know, because Trump, yeah. we'll talk about this later, Trump declared victory. Yep. Republicans had to feel very good about this. <clears throat> Democrats today are ecstatic about what happened, especially so So the three of us here are in Illinois, and it was, it was, a, it was, a, it was a blue wave a across, blue. and everybody's very excited in terms of the Democrats. Oh, yeah. I mean, Illinois, we were just talking to my students today, sort of Illinois came back home last night, right? Mm -hmm. So we've got, you know, at the state level, we've got complete control by the Democrats. We have almost every district now, House District in Illinois is Democratic. We are sending more diverse candidates to Congress now. Um, a district right adjacent to where we are, the Illinois 14th, elected uh, Lauren Underwood last night, who beat a longtime incumbent, Randy Holkren. Um, and she worked for the Obama administration and has been open about working for the Obama administration. And it didn't hurt her. And she won pretty handily. So She's the youngest? She's No, she's not one of the youngest, but she's so um, who was the youngest? Alexandra Ocasio Cortez. Oh, in New York. okay. Yeah, mm -hmm. who's the youngest? And there's another woman, and I, I can't place what state, but she—it's her and Alexandra Ocasio Cortez are the two youngest. Okay. Lauren, Lauren Underwood, I think, is 37, but she's childless and unmarried, and those are things that are supposed to matter for female candidates. And she was able to to beat this father of five who had served this district for, I think, almost a decade. Mm -hmm. And the district that we're sitting in was flipped um, after Republicans had controlled it for 30 years. Mm-hmm. So long term, are, are, are Democrats going to be able to maintain these seats or is this what's your thought? Is this like a little blip? Because, I mean, it's two years from now. We're going to be having a whole nother election. Right. And there was so much change. It feels like a lot of these Democratic gains are very vulnerable moving forward. Is that your sense? Well, this is what we've seen since 2008. Well, I'm, I'm sorry, since 2006, right? When the Democrats took over the House with this this Rahm Emanuel strategy of cherry picking these districts where they could pick up. They pick them up in 06, they retain them in 08 because they ride Obama's coattails. And these are districts they probably shouldn't have won in the first place. So then in 2010, part of why the Republicans took back was that these districts that should never have in, have elected Dem uh, Democrats, the Republicans win again. Fast forward a couple of years later, they hold on to the majority for a while, but then we see a more unpopular president. We see a fractured Republican party. We see more Democratic enthusiasm. And this is the last midterm before we have redistricting. So now we have... The next midterm is four years from now where we will have brand new districts. And so in some ways, I don't really know how to answer your question yeah. because I don't know what the districts are going to look like. Mm -hmm. But we've seen that there's been a bouncing back and forth where a lot of these districts are hard to keep. And now with some initiatives across different states to change the way redistricting happens, Michigan, for example, is now going to do yeah. a bipartisan redistricting commission. I don't, I don't know if it's going to be easier or harder, I sure. guess is my answer. Hmm. 
I think that's probably one of the reasons why this election. So, I, I mean, the, obviously, the stuff that makes the news is the, you know, the House and the Senate races. But um, I, it's why these elections matter are the state level races as well. And so when you have this, you know, this widespread support for I mean, I, it doesn't show up in the in the Senate races, but Democrats won big yesterday, they did. right? And 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 that carried over into state races, this high turnout, at, and so you see state governments shifting towards the Democratic Party right before, not everywhere, but in lots of places, right before redistricting, right? Yes. And and that's that sort of thing matters. Um, I mean, in the end, that it, that's the thing for 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 me as a as a comparativist, you know, I, I look I study I I look at you know, I teach about European elections. Our style of election system, this, you know, single member district election system is designed to amplify the winner, right? So when the when the Democrats win by, what did they, seven, eight percentage points? Oh, nine, it was almost nine. nine percent. Yeah, yes. yeah. Um, what's supposed to happen in those cases is that they should end up with much more than a nine percent, um, right. you know, gap in, in control of seats actually mm-hmm. um, and the system's designed to do that so when you know Democrats do well they get a big majority so that they can govern the fact that they eked it's not eked out but ended up with a 20 seat you know majority or whatever after winning an election in which they had 10 percent you know won by nine percent um, is a testament to the the the, the gerrymandering right mm-hmm. and and to um, you know that the the effectiveness of some of the you know, in Georgia, where the the governor's race is down to like a hundred thousand or seventy five thousand votes, yeah. and and Kemp like was responsible for flushing two to three hundred thousand people out of yeah. out of the rolls, or so. I mean, that that's where the state who who controls state politics mm-hmm. plays out in important ways in the longer run. No, absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's such an interesting thing, like in the Georgia case with Kemp, who being is the Secretary of State, is yeah. the one you know suggesting or dictating the rules, monitoring yeah. the elections. And Phil, I've heard a number of people saying that if this was done in another country the united states would be critical right. of oh, somebody yeah. counting the votes also mm-hmm. running that, that, that would be true that would yeah, be troubling yeah. <laughs> yes 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 all sorts of conflicts of interest the stuff he was doing I, it was really it was really i mean it's really a shame i mean it's one of those things where if so assume he actually is the more popular candidate and would have won by doing going about the election this way. He casts, you know, he undermines his own legitimacy when he wins. And mm-hmm. if that's what you have to do to win, then it's, you know, it's uh, uh, I don't know. Then you, you lack legitimacy anyway. It's it's just a shame to see that a, a major election like that play out. There, there's no reason why that should be allowed. There should just be a simple, you know, if you're actually running for the office, you don't get to run the election. <laughs> um, Anyway, but I have to think though that the 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 fight over the rules and voting is only going to get more extreme over the next two years, right? Oh, As we sure. move closer to the presidential election, oh, there are so many states that are are playing these, these issues out. Pennsylvania, which had its redistricting, Did. was a huge mm-hmm. victory for Democrats. That's right. That has to terrify Republicans. For that sure. similar dynamics will play out. This is only going to become more hyperpartisan as we get closer to 2020. That's right. Mm-hmm. There was a question in the, the CNN exit polls, which I've been, <laughs> I emailed Bill late last night. Obsessing like, about. Look, I've been <laughs> obsessing over the exit <laughs> polls. And here's what. I said this to my students today. Exit polls only take us so far, right? I mean, we, they, it doesn't, they don't explain why people vote the way they do, but we get a sense of patterns. So we, you know, just sort of the, just the social scientist in me has to put that out there first. But what, there was a question on the exit polls, questions I've never seen before. And one of them was, 
do you think that it's too easy to vote or do you think that it should be more difficult to vote? And it split directly on party lines, wow. right? So that's not quite the wording of the question, but it was basically that, is that should we make it easier or is it harder for some people easier? Split directly down party lines. And that tells us something to your point, Bill, about moving forward. And I tell my students this all the time. The institutions dictate outcomes. And when you don't get the outcome you want, you try to change the institution. This is going to happen in the next couple of years. We're going to see either stricter voter ID laws or more challenges to voter ID laws. Um, and similar things that happened in Georgia are going to continue to happen. Mm -hmm. And the stakes will be so much higher in 2020. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Nick. Oh, yeah. You've been so, so <laughs> quiet. Are you remembering all the things in the capstone that was about midterm elections? That no, you're trying that's to all back? gone. That's, <laughs> that got replaced so by something else. I was so excited to hear you make me proud with all the things I taught you. No, I'm sorry. That's I'm full. I'm sure it's just memes in there now. <laughs> um, no, I, I mean, realistically, I'll be perfectly honest. I was asleep by 930. Oh. I was not resigned. I was... I, I, I was not going to be in shock waking up the next morning and seeing the results. Yeah. And, and it was exactly what I thought it was going to be. Uh, it, it was it seemed blatantly obvious that the Democrats, um, they were going to retake the House. What was a little bit shocking was the uh, the uh, what's the word? Um, not severity, but the. Um, not excessiveness either. The Republicans be able to to um, cement their their position in the Senate mm -hmm. as much as they did, which was a little surprising and relatively not unheard of, but kind of abnormal it for is. midterms. It is to win seats. I mean, they, yeah. they expanded their control of the Senate. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Which uh, this, I, I mean, this was a story that to me was done months ago. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think. Despite what people say and despite what, you know, who you were voting for, why you were voting for them, this was a referendum on the president and the administration. Uh, the administration doubled down on immigration at the last moment when they shouldn't have and they should have doubled down on the economy, mm -hmm. uh, talking about infrastructure, just about anything except what they did. Mm -hmm. And something could have potentially changed. Would it have been enough to swing the House? Probably not. No. But it put enough of a bad taste in everyone's mouth that it it was it was just not good political strategy and Which, i think that showed their um their why can't i think of the the words escape me tonight i'm so not angry cuz we're talking about congress so you're just like I know, fuck I, it's I just why is it just gone um <laughs> but it's surprising given that that they still were able to not only maintain the red wall in the senate but expand seats i mean right. that, that that surprised me a little bit when you think about and maybe we shouldn't talk about waves maybe that's not the right metaphor but you felt like this blue wave was going to hit and not just knock the house down but also at least have some inroads in the senate it, yeah it was it no. was the exact opposite no. Yeah. I didn't yeah. think that at all, Bill. Think, yeah. No, I mean every uh, it's district by district, right? Well, yeah. yeah, and also the the electoral the Senate map was so much more favorable for Republicans, right. so they weren't defending as many seats, and the seats mm -hmm. the Democrats were defending were in Trump states. So automatically, we knew that the Senate that there were going to be a couple of pickups uh, for the Republicans. It just depended on whether or not Democratic pickups in other places may offset it a little bit, but. I was not expecting, I didn't see anyone that was expecting the blue wave, so to speak, to hit the Senate. Mm -hmm. The What I was seeing for the House was anywhere between 28 and 44 seats, and I think we're hitting right about in the middle mm -hmm. of that. Um, I think there was an expectation that the Democrats might do a little better in the, at, the, at the governorships, even though they flipped seven, which is pretty significant. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think the Florida loss was disappointing. But the Kansas win for the Democrats for the, for the governor was a huge win. So yes. 
though there were some things we didn't expect, like, I don't know, Laura Kelly becoming the new governor of Kansas, um, and then things we didn't ex- we did expect, which was to be a really close race between Gillum and DeSantis. And right. so some of the things were unexpected and some were It was wonky, working. yeah. It was, yeah. it was. It was kind of all over the place. Which maybe speaks to the, the level. I mean, it was, like you said, there was turnout was high, and there, the enthusiasm was high on both sides. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Phil, you were going to say something? I don't remember what it was. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think that yeah, the the it's easy to look at the Senate and feel like this is this is weird that the that the Republicans seem to do really well in the Senate. But uh, like you were saying, Suzanne, that was what people were expecting, right? Mm-hmm. The seats they lost were seats that the Democrats probably shouldn't have had to begin with. And that's the weird thing about the Senate, because two years from now, the map looks the exact opposite. It's it looks so really good for for Democrats right. and really tough for Republicans. That's right. And so, you know, it's entirely possible that, you know, that when you have the House where every every seat is up for grabs every single time, you can see the, the sort of national swings a little more easily. And so it's very possible that in two years, the Democrats will do. Better. better in the Senate yep. than they do in the House, and it's just the 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 weird, um, yeah, it's the weird layout of of the way that that carries out. We look for patterns that may be driven by districts, right? I mean, it may mm-hmm. be that we're looking for broader effects, but so much of it is determined by who's up and what. what right. uh, so there are other other exit polling data. So we got to let Suzanne because there's there's a lot of interesting <laughs> things so here. Yeah, okay. both women and suburbs and lots of interesting yes. dynamics. Yeah. So if we look a little bit more at the exit polling, um, the we know that whites still turn out more in midterms of so 72% and the exit polls were white. So that's the same. Um, white men are continuing to, this is the gender gap was 23 points, right? So we've got a 20 points where women voted democratic. And then we had three points where men were voting more Republican. Is that higher than it's higher 2016? Than, it's higher than 2016. I mean, it usually hovers around 20. So, but it's, it's mm-hmm. right around there, maybe a little bit higher. Um, uh, but, uh, the white so white women there were more white women voted than white men, <clears throat> which was interesting. So mm. women always so fifty two percent for the exit polls were women. So women always vote more than men, but white women voted more than white men by two percentage points. Um, and that's unusual. Uh, yeah, a little bit. I, I would say a little bit. I, I I probably should do a little more fact checking before I answer that, but I would say that that yes, that's a mm-hmm. little bit rare. Um, and that, but. But those 37% voted 50% for Democrats and 48% for Republicans. And so um, when we look at, when we add in the, you know, Latin, Latinas and African-Americans, that's where we see the gender gap more. So it's not just for white women. But my my point of all of this is to say um, that when you interact race, gender, and region, when you look at suburbs, it's really the white suburban women at this point that every single candidate in 2020 needs to try to get whether we're talking about House, Senate, or President. It's white suburban women. And today at the press conference, the president told us that women need security. <laughs> they want financial and physical security and that he is going to give it to them. That's Go, important, girl. important first step to it's get really, those voters. I mean, those, white, those women voters are just feeling good about that phrase today. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, um, did we see a divide? So, so a lot of people talk about the diploma gap now, right? Yeah. So, so oh, I yeah. keep thinking about the, you know, you've got you've got race, you've got gender, you've got all these variables, but also that diploma gap also seems to be something that's, it's as Phil was mentioning earlier, important. It's huge, and that's and fairly the, new. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Basically, right? the last uh, last election, right? I mean, this is the 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 lower educated union blue collar Bill Clinton Democrats are staunch Trumpers now, right? I mean. The, this expectation that Hillary Clinton would win them because of her 
husband was so short-sighted for so many reasons, but these are people that are squarely in Trump's camp, people that voted for Obama and then flipped over. Most of this has to do with education. So the exit polls are telling us the same thing, that whether it's um, high school or less or an associate's degree, that they're breaking significantly for the Republican Party. Um, and then you interact that with region, with education, you interact it with income and race. And you can very squarely see these are people in the red coalition and these are people in the blue coalition. And it's not, there's no in-between. And it's just going to continue to keep to keep moving. I think this was just a lot of the trends from 2016 were reinforced here. I mean, that's an interesting... I heard some analysis about that today, as a matter of fact, that the people, that particular subset of the voting bloc is, was the bread and butter of the Democratic Party up until fairly recently, right. which mm-hmm. is... It seems bizarre to me that they have kind not completely because I, I heard a lot of Democratic strategists saying we need to completely get away from that old method of thinking where we're focused on, you know, white working class uh, men pretty much. And we have the co- coalition that we need and we don't need them anymore. Right. And that seems troubling to me. I agree. Really, really troubling because it's. It seems to be not necessarily I I understand that the breakdown is you can look at it by education, but it seems more like economic opportunity and the not inability, but unwillingness to take the concerns of that particular group into consideration as much as they were previously. Oh, absolutely. Which, again, we have a more diverse population than we than we did previously, but it's not a small group of people who mm-hmm. feel like they're mm-hmm. getting left behind and, right. you know, were a significant factor in bringing Trump and the administration to power. 100% right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And then what are the factors that matter? Oh, go ahead, Phil. You're welcome, by the way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> For the validation. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> the, the strange thing about it is that the the policies of the Democratic Party are actually fairly popular with, with the, those groups. <laughs> this right. is where, you know, we talk about identity politics yes. and people throw yeah, identity sure. politics at the Democratic Party. Mm-mm. But in a lot of ways, this is this is more that identity element of it. It's like a culture thing. 100% you right. You get into this urban-rural divide. So, you know, Medicaid and you know, Medicare expand, Medicare ex- Medicaid expansion. One of them. Um, Both. <laughs> um, you know, the, the, some the, the policies of the Democratic Party have proven to be really popular, right. even in red states. And so the, you have these voters who are, you know, pissed at the Democratic Party, even though as far as policy preferences go, they line up with the Democratic Party mm-hmm. in lots of ways. And so that's a that's a weird thing. I don't know how you navigate that if you're the Democratic Party. So mm-hmm. how do you reach out to them? You legislate. The thing that mobilizes them is that they hate you. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you, Phil. I no, just no. I mean, they have excited. to how to sell their policies somehow. Right. But, but, but the problem that? is when when the affiliation is democratic policies are stupid then how do you as the democrats sell policies even if they like the policies when they're opposed to them because they're coming from democrats i I think a lot of this has to do with the fact that the the democrats have not controlled congress for such a long time that they're running on what they might do but it's nothing they can actually do because they're in the minority so bill and i were talking about this you know the best strategy although it looks like from what we're reading today that this is not what the democrats are going to do is they need to pass some shit they Mm -hmm. need to legislate so this is the signal they'll send to these forgotten voters right that hey we're going to pass stuff you like we're going to pass stuff on prescription drugs we're going to pass stuff on infrastructure we're going to pass things on healthcare. we're going to do these things you're going to like these things and then we're going to leave it to the Red Senate and the Red White House and see what they're going to do about mm-hmm. it. I think that now they have the opportunity to show these voters what they actually are going to do, but they have to do it. 
So we're all in agreement I'm, that they're not going to do that, right? Yeah, I just want to make it clear. I still come around to how that it still seems difficult to me. And I, I think about the role of Fox News and whatnot in mm -hmm. this. You, I think back to Obamacare, in which people, Republican voters who liked the individual aspects <laughs> of Obamacare or yeah. liked the ACA, <laughs> yeah. but were opposed to Obamacare. Obamacare. And I think about like, there's this there's this disjunct in which you know if if you watch Fox News or you're that that's all you're going to hear is that these things are terrible and so I that's a hard yeah I mean I it's but it was so you're right it's not wrong yeah but it was an interesting flip this time though because healthcare was oftentimes the most it important was. issue it was the most important issue and you saw Republicans arguing you know making this argument that no no we've always been for supporting right. pre-existing conditions and it was like it, it's it struck me this is out of left field where did this come from mm -hmm. suddenly you have Republicans saying no 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 we we believe in this element of we don't like Obamacare we don't like the Affordable Care Act mm -hmm. but we, you know this one this one element of it we do mm -hmm. Which felt like that was a significant shift. So I, I think you're right, Phil, that it's hard for the Democrats, but it's also the Republicans are also a bit on their heels on this one as well. Oh, for sure. But the Republicans were responding. I mean, the weird thing about that is like the pre-existing conditions aspect of it. They were are running on this, you know, we're we're supportive of protecting pre-existing conditions, yeah. while simultaneously the, <laughs> many of these candidates had their names on lawsuits yes. trying to trying to bring about an end to that. It, it, that's right. it's That's where I think the Fox News aspect of it ha allows this sort of disjunct from actually po actual policy discussions or the, you know, it's, it's just becomes a, a game, right? It's I, a, it's, I had conservative radio on the other day. Cause this Why is, would you well, I was, I was just driving somewhere <laughs> and it was, it was interesting, you know, cause they were talking about this whole issue of preexisting conditions. And it was, uh, actually it was, it was, it was the Wisconsin radio station. And they were saying that this is a Why lie. Why would you though. do that? Well, cause I'm from Wisconsin, you know, so sometimes <laughs> it happens, but they were saying that this is a democratic lie that that republicans have always supported the coverage of pre-existing conditions and that you know this the democrats have lost it and this is this isn't an accurate depiction of where where republicans are at and i was trying to say to it's myself not true. that's just right. it's like literally not true i, I never <laughs> yeah. remember a republican making the case for this now it, it, yeah so so i think you're right it is it is selective memory it's a weird shift because they used to, I mean, there, there's an argument for why pre-existing conditions shouldn't be covered, right? And that was an argument, a free market argument that Republicans mm -hmm. were making about, you know, how that contributes to the cost of, of health insurance. And it's weird to see them banned, not necessarily abandon the belief in that, but to just sort of change their rhetoric in a way that doesn't lie. It, it's, it's a... Yeah, it's it's confusing. Well, I mean, you guys said it. It came out of left field. Like yeah. all, what a month ago, maybe. Yeah. Like they they knew this was going to be an issue. They had to do something, yeah. and it was another one of those knee jerk, last minute things again, along with immigration, that they just had to kind of throw out in front of people and see if it stuck. And obviously, it didn't in this particular situation. Yeah. Well, if they had done the strategy and done the work, like you said, Phil, and come with a a good solid salient opposing argument yeah it probably would have drawn more people but you have to do something and i think it again shows their inexperience in this particular field and their unwillingness to mm -hmm. actually do the hard work they're uncomfortable to talk change. about that yeah, yeah. The, the weird thing for me is that the way the system is supposed to work is that republicans realize that you know attacking pre-existing conditions is not a winning issue for them and so they either drop that issue or they adopt it like right. they shift their their platform to pick up more voters and but that hasn't been their approach their approach has been to stick with the policy but change just the rhetoric. Yeah. Lie about it. <laughs> well, that's, that's one way to say it. Policy. Yeah. 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 Um, and that, that's, I mean, that's what's, that's, that's just strange to me. Like the idea of that, that the policy is important enough for them to hold on to, but they realize it's losing. So they'll just, 
you know, obfuscate is, mm. is that's the polite way of saying lie. Mm. <laughs> well, the thing I, Bill and I were talking about this, I think it was earlier this week, I don't, or maybe even end of last week, maybe it was the end of last week, where, you know, Trump was going to all these rallies, holding all these rallies in all these different places to try to get these people elected, and then saying that people that didn't want him there were all losers, and he doesn't feel, and today he said he doesn't feel bad for any Republican that lost that didn't embrace him. Well, they're losers. Well, yeah. they're losers. They, and did, haters, they right? did lose. They, they did, did lose. lose. But um, Bill brought up a good point that, most of the places that Trump went are not for the midterms, right? They're for his reelection. Right. And so I think to Nick's point about the message that was being delivered, of course Trump is going to talk about birthright citizenship and sending the you know 15,000 troops to the border and all of that because that's what got him elected. He wasn't thinking about what was going to get his co-partisans elected in Congress. He was thinking about what's going to get him elected in 2020. And so all of a sudden today at the press conference, now he's talking about the economy because what he was doing didn't do him any good, mm-hmm. and now he's going to start talking about the economy, and so mm-hmm. it seems very all over the place. Yeah. Well, he's he's self interested. <laughs> what? <laughs> Shocked about yeah. this. On Never that note, well, we have more we have more midterm talk, but maybe we should talk beers and yes. then come back to the the midterm. So Phil, so I, you're drinking out of a red solo cup. What's in the red solo cup? Yeah. Well, you'll be proud of me, Bill. <laughs> yeah. Tonight I am drinking a Grippa grapefruit ipa oh it's not a great i couldn't go all the way with a grapefruit shandy oh, yeah but why? you have so the good. fruit because grapefruit shandies are terrible <gasps> <laughs> but grapefruit ipa i you know i this is this is from cisco brewers in, in nantucket massachusetts and um it's it's pretty good bill yeah I, you know, i'm i'm a little more convinced but this is this is more ipa with a hint of grapefruit as opposed to <laughs> grapefruit with a hint of beer which is what some of the stuff is that you've recommended to me in the past it's a so. gateway drug so drugs so if you keep drinking right. that eventually you'll be to the grapefruit shandy right. it's, yeah we'll they throw so you'll much come grapefruit around. into ipas because it's I wonderful and delightful that. and doesn't it lighten it up a little bit right when the grapefruit sort of yeah yeah but why grapefruit specifically it has the tartness it, exactly it, it's like yeah. it's more right because they do tangerine and orange it's not the same mm. the grapefruit takes it's it to the next the level oh so good yeah fine Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, Fine. Nick, what, what are we having? Uh, hold on. Um, That's a big beer. Yeah. I'm just going to point that out for our listeners. <laughs> so this is a Norwegian IPA brewed with Vaskiv yeast. Jotnar? Yeah, I don't know. It's got a unicorn skull on it and a wrench. and It's from Pipeworks. Look it up. Yeah. I don't know. It starts with a J, not a Y, because it's Norwegian. Stupid. How is it? Um, it's not bad. Yeah. Um, I, I go back and forth on Pipeworks a lot. Mm-hmm. This is, it's, it's, uh, it's got bite to it. Um, it's pretty crisp. It's not very opaque. Uh, not a lot of head on it. Um, I don't really know how I feel about it. It's, it's kind of there. It's good. It's. I will say, like you know, we we've we've had some not so great IPAs lately. This is one of the better ones we've had, and I will say I generally don't like Pipeworks. So we, you know, I keep pulling them, and they're like, eh, they're not as good. They never live up to the hype. But I think this one is solid. It's it, it's a good IPA. It has, to Phil's point, it has a little grapefruitiness to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's more cloudy. Uh, but this, no, I, I would have another one of these, and I don't always feel that way about every uh, bomber we get from Pipeworks. Yeah, I so. would say this is probably one of their better offerings. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Jotnar. Yeah, that sounds check, right. Check, yeah, yeah, I don't that's know. That's good, right? Yeah, I have a question about cloudiness. What is cloudiness in a beer 
um, signal to a drinker. There's, they let more of the like the stuff in, like the the, the atmosphere. <laughs> they let more clouds in. Yeah, the uh, so much fun you know the yeast goes <laughs> in. So like it depends if it's how controlled it is. They actually put a fog machine in the. <laughs> is there dry ice in there? Or what? <laughs> like these Belgium ones, they just leave the canisters open and like you know stuff oh, comes in. You know, it's dust. Yeah. It's dust. Oh yeah. <laughs> All sorts of living organisms. And... Well, it tastes delicious. Yeah. Yeah. I do. Yeah. I like a cloudy beer. Like I noticed it when you said it compared yeah. to mine to yours. And yeah. I, tep- I do like a cloudier beer. I was mm-hmm. just curious. I wasn't trying to put you on the spot. No, no, no. Phil, you're going to like Suzanne's beer. Suzanne, what are you drinking? <gasps> oh, well, of course, Phil takes care of me and brings <laughs> me beer and knows what I like. So um, this is a Lagunitas. Uh, it's a 12th of never. So this is something that I drink a lot because Bill brings it for me. Um, and I just, I was reading the, the top of the can. Have either any of you ever read the top of the can, what it says around the top? No. <laughs> okay. At best, it's 12 ounce of malt, hops, yeast, love, and vibe in a solution of di hydrogen oxide captured in an aluminum yum wrapper. Mm, Love it. That's good. It just makes me like it even more. Yeah. It's good marketing. It's really crisp. It's really light. Um, that's it's a great beer. It it's is. So it's just good. I don't. I mean, I have nothing like interesting to say about it except for it's like a good. Yeah. <gasps> Cheers, Phil. Phil's having one too. <laughs> it's just a good, solid beer, right, Phil? Yeah. Yeah. That's good one stuff. of my favorite ones. Good yeah. They, Lagunitas is great. Yeah. Good stuff. All right. And there's a there's a dog on. There's yeah. a dog. He's cute. He's a and the can is purple. Before we do speed run, you want to do the Spanish for dog, right? The plug. Is, oh yeah. <laughs> I was like, wait, what? <laughs> That's funny, Phil. Um, there's got to be a way to record these things and uh, put them up on uh, Untapped, but I want to talk to them about that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, if you guys are interested in finding out what beers that we try on the podcast, uh, look us up on Untapped, which you can download on iOS or Android, uh, and I'm assuming other places or other people have phones. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you can do it on dumb phones. Do they have like a movie phone call-in thing? Is that what they're called? Is there dumb a BlackBerry phone? app? Dumb phones. I'm not sure. <laughs> I got to look at my Palm Pilot. Um, yeah, so check us out on there. We are Barstool Politics. You can uh, look at all the reviews that uh, that we have for all the beers that we try. All right, more midterm speed round. Yeah. So, All right, so the midterm elections allowed the public to weigh in on Trump and his brand of politics. In the run-up to the midterms, Trump rejected calls from within his administration for calm and instead doubled down on his own nativism, nationalist, and anti-immigration rhetoric. He believed it was central to the electoral success. In a combative press conference today, which was absolutely surreal. Oh, bonkers, Yes. Uh, Trump declared total victory. Uh, now, I'm wondering whether we think last night's results were, in fact, a victory for Trump. In other words, has Trump been rewarded or repudiated for his antics? Now, Republicans lost fewer seats in the House of Representatives than Democrats lost in 1994 or 2010 during Clinton and Obama's first terms as president. Both of those presidents also lost Senate seats in their first midterm. So what lessons are we to draw? And moving forward, what lessons do we think Trump draws? Because that's really the most important thing. Phil, you study nationalism, and you study it well. Um, what lessons should we Trump draw from this? And and do you think he he was legitimately right that he was successful? Wrong. <laughs> Stop the clock. Yeah. So um, first, first of all, I, I want to go back again to what we were said in the first um, bit, which is that the nature of the institutions affected the, the, the size of the Democratic win or the Republican win. So if you look at popular vote mm-hmm. nationwide, mm-hmm. Um, this was a big win for Democrats. Yeah. So in those other, this is again where gerrymandering and all sorts of other things sort of minimize the number of seats that translated into. Was this a win for Trump? Was this a repudiation of Trump? 
Um, I think the answer is yes. I, I think it was both. I mean, I, I, this is back to the this divide that we see in America, and and it plays out in again this the the education um, on on other lines as well. But you can see very much this urban rural divide. Um, the South looks different. So, did Trump's you know the the last few weeks this push on uh, sort of nationalist rhetoric? Um, did that work? I think that for a lot of Americans, it did. I think uh, there are a lot of Americans who were deeply turned off by it as well. So Democrats were really fired up. And, and you know, I think in general, this is, um, you know, the size of the turnout and the fact that Democrats won is uh, to some extent a repudiation of Trump, right? People are, there's backlash to what has happened in the last two years in, in politics. Having said all of that, the, the question of whether or not Republicans would look at Trump in the way that he has he has acted over the last two years and say, we're not interested in that, um, that did not happen. So there, the, the majority of Republicans, the vast majority of Republicans have looked at Donald Trump and his policies and his rhetoric over the last two years and have said, I, I don't have a problem with that. I, I support that. Um, that's, you know, for for personal reasons, a little you know, disconcerting for me, but, um, I, yeah, I think, I think, uh, amongst his base, his, his, th this has largely worked. I think it just gets us back to this deeply divided place we are, um, we're in. And, and, and it also is a statement of the extent to which Trump has solidified his control of the Republican party for somebody who in the primaries leading up to the presidency was not popular amongst Republican elites within, you know, DC, even nationwide wasn't all that particularly popular, man, the Republican party looks like Trump now. That, that's, that is, that has been the case. So mm, I, yeah, I think it's mixed. I think yeah. the, 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 the results are mixed. Suzanne. <laughs> I, no, I, I think for all the reasons Phil said, that's absolutely right. And I think the important thing for me as someone who studies institutions is the first thing Phil said, which is the institutions set up these elections to go the way that they did and the you know you look at the senate vote for example i think the statistic is that 57 percent of the votes in the senate were cast for democratic candidates but because of the states like you know diane feinstein is in california there's a lot of people she gets a lot of votes right and so nationwide there were more votes cast for democratic senators but when it's not you know evenly divided across the states you're not going to have democrats winning every senate seat right and the same thing for the house races so i I guess maybe I'm biased because I study and love institutions so dearly. But if nothing else, I think this election reminds us more and more, whether it's voter ID laws, disenfranchisement, voter roll purging, whatever it is, that institutions are going to dictate outcomes and we're going to continue to see a manipulation of these institutions. And because we're coming into redistricting, the census will be 2020, we'll come into redistricting in 2022. What happens in 2020? Who's in the Senate seats? Who's in the House seats? Who's in the White House? Congress is going to look different in 2022. Mm. And that's going to set us up for what's going to happen in 2024. Mm. And yes, I literally took us to 2024. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. Nick, Nick, did Trump win? Oh, you know what? I, it, it, considering the rhetoric that was going around for the past six months or so, I mean, this could have been a complete bloodbath, which I think they were able to mitigate to some extent and trump took all the credit for that obviously he, he is 100 percent responsible for that he is for our sure. lord and savior <laughs> um no i i think what you really need to look at is that the democrats um 
they spent a tremendous amount of effort and money oh, in a really? lot of these races. And a lot of those races where they spent the most money, they ended up losing long-term incumbents that they shouldn't have lost, which I, it's, it, I find it hard to believe that they'll be able to keep up this level of enthusiasm and monetary support for the next two years to support a candidate in a party that is, at this point, they have no good figurehead that they could potentially point to going into 2020. I Beto. think... Beto. No. He, Beto, Beto. No, that's, he'll get massacred by Trump. It, it just... It, it won't even be fair. I, I, I'm sorry. Like, it just won't. Well, that's why he should wait till 2024. I Beto, agree. Beto wants to run. He should wait till I agree. Uh, my... I, I just... I think they... As much as people say that the Republican Party is fragmented and fractured, the Democrats have taken to a strategy that is not dependent on a kind of coalesced vision and policy standpoint or platform, but more, again, a referendum against the current administration and just kind of current enthusiasm about, you know, their prospects and uh, an alternative, which they, uh, you know, we'll talk about it. They have to govern at this point, too. So we'll see what that does. If they're not able to do that over the next two years, it's going to be very difficult for them to not only maintain what they have, um, but gain more than what they have currently. I, I don't know. I, I think it's, I wouldn't call it a win, but I think it's a a strategic withdrawal, for lack of a better term. <laughs> I love it, Nick. No, I, I will. You're absolutely right in the sense that being the opposition party requires different behavior than governing. And we'll talk about that in a second. I will say, as, as I was reflecting on this, I've been in a, a bit of a grumpy mood the last couple of days because of this. Oh. And it, it strikes me that... <laughs> 2016 was a that was whether a, a president could win on Trump's agenda, right? Could you run a nativist, a nationalist, and, and could an individual be elected on that campaign? And we saw yes, that could happen. And then 2018 was going to see whether a party could do that. And I think we saw that a party could still be successful. I don't know. Victory is kind of a messy term and it's complicated, but I think we saw that a party could still not get decimated and still expand seats on that on that platform and that that's troubling to me and I think it's troubling to a lot of more traditional conservatives who feel like geez where how is this party long term going to continue to run on this agenda when the demographics are going to be against you I, I I think conservatism has to has to have a reckoning with where the country is ultimately going to end up 20 years from now and that mm -hmm. that concerns me I think for the for the excuse me the older age category, so we usually look like fifty plus, and mm -hmm. then you look at sixty five plus, right? So when you look at fifty plus, uh, I'm sorry, when you look at sixty five plus, so this is where all those Republicans are. They're all in the six. I mean, the 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 only age category Republicans win is sixty five plus. When you look at fifty plus, you look at from fifty to sixty five. These are the people you're talking about. Yeah. These are sort of like the fiscal conservatives, like. Socially moderate-ish, you know, sort of the more like Reagan before he went like all welfare queen, sort mm -hmm. of like Reagan, Reagan Republicans. Mm -hmm. And so as the 65 plus dies off and then the younger generations that are more progressive start to become the ones that are voting more, the party is going to, as you said, have to come to a reckoning. It, they're just going to yeah. have to. All right, let's shift gear and look at the other side of the aisle and what the Democrats do, as Nick suggested, with their power, which they haven't had forever. They're so, twirling their mustaches yes. right now. 
So the Democratic Party will soon take control of the House of Representatives and find itself in the unique position of actually wielding some real power. That is a unique position it, it, it for It absolutely them. is. Maybe, we spent a lot sure. of time talking about that. The question then is what they will do with this newfound power. Do they put the subpoena office on speed dial and start investigations uh, of the president's finances, Russian intervention, and all the administration's ethics scandals, and maybe even Donald T's tax returns? Or do they take a more modest approach and simply attempt to govern? And while it doesn't need to be an either-or proposition, it will be important for the party to get that balance right. Uh, what we would need, uh, what we would need, is the advice. Uh, so, what advice would we offer the power-wielding Democrats to do, Suzanne? What are you telling Nancy Pelosi? Oh, oh I'm telling her, Nan. Not sure you're going to get reelected speaker. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> She'll be. She'll probably be speaker. Um, so, Bill and I were talking about this earlier, and I think that the fact that you said it's not an either-or proposition is really important. And I had mentioned this earlier when Phil was asking, you know, what can Democrats do to get back some of these Bill Clinton voters? And I said, you have to legislate, right? Mm-hmm. So, I really think what is the most important thing right now is for the Democratic caucus to sit down, you know, go do their team building and their icebreakers and become one big family, <laughs> go on their retreat, whatever it takes, and come up with a strategy where they all feel like they can vote as a block. They have to say the same thing, mm-hmm. they have to advocate for the same thing, and they have to vote in a homogenous block. And mm-hmm. they have to do a lot quickly. They need a 100-day strategy like Nancy Pelosi did in 2007. They have to do it, and they have to do it fast. They have to send stuff to the Senate and let the Senate do what it's going to do. Now, what Bill brought up, which is not, which is a fair point, is part of what the Democrats have been running on, and not only running on but saying since before 2016, was we need to figure out if there's collusion, we need to look at taxes, we need to have some oversight. And so I think that you can do both. But I think that what the Democrats really need to do as they move into 2020, and quite honestly into other state legislative elections and things that are happening before we get to 2020, is to have big legislative, not necessarily wins because they can't do it alone, but send big things to the other chamber Mm -hmm. while they're doing the investigating. So it doesn't look like like they're only doing one or only doing the other. I think that the optics of that, I think it's really, Mm -hmm. I think it matters. But the president said today at his press conference, if the Democrats come after him to investigate, they will. The Republicans will not work with them at all on legislation. And it'll be investigative war. It'll be mm-hmm. I'll, I'll investigate we'll them better, him. right? Yeah. What do you say? I can investigate them even better. But right. that should, I think, should propel Nancy Pelosi and whoever else is in the leadership positions to legislate harder, because then they can say, "Look at what they're doing now. We said we would come in here and do something, and they called us obstructionist. You voted for us. We're going to do something, and now they're going to be obstructionist. Do you think they're actually going to? I mean, really, and I'm asking. I'm not trying to be glib or anything. No. Do you think that's actually? <laughs> um, do you think they're actually going? I, I think there's enough of the Democratic electorate that this was a referendum on the president. For that some, was I think there. That's fair. I, yeah. I think there's a significant portion that. You know, just listening to the reports over the past week and even in the past month or so, there was more when you just talk to someone about what they're interested in. It was about Trump and the administration more than it was about a specific issue that they were interested in or a specific candidate or a, a specific candidate's platform. Do you think that they, for one, and not even for one, do you think that they will expend political capital trying to legislate when they're a good portion of their electorate of their party is telling them this is what we were interested we want some sort of something to happen with an investigation with russia anything that is going to attempt to lessen trump's power or to completely remove him from power 
So, so yes, and here's why. Okay. Because those voters that you just described, the ones who want the Democrats to like put Trump's feet to the fire, mm-hmm. are going to vote for the Democrats. Mm-hmm. It's those Bill Clinton voters that you were talking about before mm. that, and those are the ones that, so this is sort of like, I said this in 2016, that I think that the Democratic Party had become so inclusive, it became exclusive. Mm-hmm. And I think they need to backtrack from a little bit of that now and try to be more like keep the people over here happy do the things with Mueller and so on and so on and so on but like let's do some stuff over here because those are the people that are going to get them the White House sure. or maintain their majority or get them the majority <coughs> in the Senate okay Phil you, Phil you love a good investigation you're, you're quite litigious yeah. if you're if you're advised <laughs> what, 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 you know you just would, know all these little tidbits about him he we just, spent a lot of time together <laughs> yeah. horrible the romance is strong so what's the balance that the Democrats just strike here um, well, I, it seems like to me there's not a whole lot of cost to trying to pass to trying to pass some legislation. But in the end, there's not much that's going to happen in the next two years with the Senate in charge of the Repub- uh, with the Senate in control uh, under the control of Republicans, the House under the control of Democrats. I I think what you're going to see happen is that the Senate's going to basically spend two years stamping approval on lots of judgeships and things like that. <laughs> And the the House is going to spend two years doing investigations. And I mean, I think on top of that, when you control the House, pass legislation, sure, you can make a point then. You can point to it when you're out on the campaign trail. But um, I, I think I... I don't think that there's been lots of talk about how Democrats need to be careful about not being too aggressive with the investigation. And I, I kind of think that's nonsense. I, I, I don't think they should be... Part of it is the tone. It mm-hmm. shouldn't be this like vindictive approach but that's their constitutional duty is oversight right this is what they're supposed to be doing not the democrats the house right the house and the senate are supposed to be doing this so um it lead you know investigating the president and russian interference and all these other things is not like something that it's not that hey you're supposed to be passing legislation and you're wasting all your time doing this other thing this other thing is part of their duty as as a house of congress and so i i think i think for me it's uh, they should investigate but it's the approach and the tone with which they do it if you can have you know if adam schiff takes over the the house intelligence committee and can lead and can can actually call you know have some hearings and subpoena people and look into it and come across as someone who's actually interested in finding out the truth about stuff and not this you know attack um, just because it's Trump. Um, I think that could be really effective. I think that will be really effective. I, they they have to get a major piece a major piece of legislation on the docket yep. prior sure. to starting. I, I mean, really that. trying to ram an investigation, not ram, but trying to yeah. start some sort of investigation. But they could do both, right? I mean, they, they could do, they, they can could do that. But one easily. needs to supersede the other. Oh, you sure. need to look like your your primary concern is. Legislating, legislating and taking care of your constituents' needs as opposed to What's the alternative. If, if, the, if the Democrats follow the Republican path of doing Benghazi-type investigations, then it comes back to bite them. For right. sure. But if they, if they are able to, and Trump, I think, will lend them some evidence to find real you know, real crimes or real evidence that suggests there's... I mean, I mean think about, like, what was his name? Uh, the EPA director. I can't think... Uh, Pruitt? Pruitt? Pruitt, right. If Pruitt was still in office and you could investigate Pruitt, <laughs> that's a gold mine, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you could, like, his soundproof toilet or whatever it was, like, if you get data on that... No, it was his phone, phone booth. Phone booth. It wasn't a toilet. What was, is happening? 
happening? Yeah. So if, Bill, Bill just uses the toilet as his phone booth. And so that's yeah. why he just that's right. Right. we never talk on the phone. So, so if, you, if you can have legitimate investigations where you're producing material, that's one thing. But if you go down the path of the Benghazi type of investigation or the Devin Nunez kind of stuff, uh, it, it backfires for the Democrats. Uh, I, so it's, it's a delicate balance. I don't disagree with you, but this is a weird dynamic in American politics, right? The, the president of the United States can go out today and on national TV say, if you investigate me, I'm coming after you. And, and everyone's like, oh. like, oh, the Democrats have to be careful. Yeah, that they that's right. Here, that's right. Like partisan or out to get like the, it's a weird dynamic in which Democrats are always panicked about appearing not overly hostile or whatever when it's like it's not a dilemma that the Republicans deal with at all. It like totally aids Republicans and it somehow hurts Democrats. It's yeah, a, because the point. Democratic Party is full of women and people of color and they can't be angry. Right. The Democratic. No, I'm I'm 100 percent serious. Nick can laugh at me all he wants. No, I, but <laughs> the Democratic caucus has already been more non-white than white. And now after this election is more even more non-white than white and also full of more women. And those people can't be angry and hostile like I am being right now. If you're the type of person who is upset about angry women, are you likely to be a president? Like a, yes, a swing voter in that situation. It seems like you're probably pretty solidly in the Republican camp. Are you gonna? Are the Democrats gonna drive you away by? Not. I mean, again, not. We're not talking about like a hysterical witch hunt. We're talking about hey, you're right. We have control of the house, and we're gonna actually look at things like you know, we're gonna call people, subpoena people, and ask them about, hey, what, what involvement did Russia have in the election? You're right, except for the way that it's being portrayed is that it is not the House's duty to have oversight over the president. That it is, oh, now the Democrats have control, and so they're going to engage in a witch hunt. If they can, if, if they can do it to Mueller... It's so stupid. It's so, it's so mad. No, I know it is. But, but, think but about, it's real. We need to move on. But think about what they've done to Mueller, right? If you can take Robert Mueller, who's one of the most respective law and order people in the world, and, and question his credibility, mm-hmm. certainly they can do this to Adam Schiff. I think that's why it's so important to get it right. Well, uh, I mean, the other part of this is, and we, you know, I, I'm not disagreeing that... You know, the the Democrats, for whatever reason, need to appear less angry or less confrontational than the Republicans do. I think that this is a moment for them to kind of break this rhetorical cycle that we've gotten ourselves into and show that they can legislate. And then at some point when the Republicans show themselves to be the unreasonable ones, yeah, then you try and kick their ass. I, I don't disagree with that at all. But you need if you are you have this lever lever of power now. Show that your first concern is to do the widely understood job that you are there for. If that doesn't work, immediately if that doesn't work, then you move to the other lever that you have and exercise that, you know, not violently, but aggressively if you have to. There, it's, it's, we've talked about this ad nauseum on this podcast, is they lack a coherent strategy when it comes to governing the 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 democrats are just they're not good at it i'm sorry they're just not i i when it comes to elections or their their ability to counter the things that republicans do this is your moment to break the again break the cycle that we've kind of found ourselves in and that everyone is saying needs to change this is your moment so do something with it you're right that should be it that's right on that last trademark that that is a that, that is also i don't 
I'm not necessarily disagreeing with you, yeah, but you that's are. also a narrative that we have adopted that I don't fully understand, right? When we look Snowflake back at the narrative? last 16 years of American politics, the biggest legislative successes have been Democratic ones, that's Obamacare false. and stuff agree. like that. <laughs> Republicans passed tax cuts, but beyond that, like what significant legislative, mm-hmm. and they've had control of the, so it, it's a weird, it's again, a weird a storyline that we as Americans have bought into that Democrats suck at this and Republicans are good at it. I think Republicans are really good at the, the gamesmanship yeah. of politics. Um, so even though Democrats might be more effective at governing, Republicans are really good at somehow selling themselves at doing things like saying, yeah, um, while they're trying to cut pre-existing conditions, telling people we're for protecting and somehow we're like, okay. And that somehow the Republicans are just better at that. Yes. I, I, yeah, yeah, I should clarify. Yeah. They're not as good at, at the game. They need to be better at playing the game. Yeah. So that's that's more my point. Right, Jeff Session got fired. We got to move on. We got to move on. Yes. We got to move on. The possum is gone. Yes. This is good stuff, though. All right. So Attorney General Jeff Sessions has resigned at the request of President Trump. To me, that sounds like you were fired. If somebody asked, whatever, that's You're okay. Fired. The move follows months of Mr. Trump expressing his displeasure with Mr. Sessions and critical tweets. The abrupt move ended Mr. Sessions' tumultuous tenure as the nation's top law enforcement officer. Once a Trump favorite, Sessions became the target of Trump uh, after he rec- recused himself in the investigation into the Russian interference in the 2016 election. Mr. Sessions' departure creates instant uncertainty, not only at the Justice Department, but also at Special Counsel Robert Mueller's office. Um, Matt Whitaker, the acting attorney general, will take control of the Mueller investigation. He was, what was his role? He was the chief of staff. Chief of staff for Sessions. Uh, Which supersedes, so there's Rod Rosenstein, who was the deputy attorney general. Trump didn't go in that direction. He went another direction. Uh, This is a big deal. So, um, Phil, this was expected, but nevertheless, on the the day after the midterms is a bit early. Uh, Reactions? Yeah, things are going to get real, real interesting, real quick. I think. Um, uh, yeah, it was. There were there were a number of Trump, uh, sort of high level officials within the Trump administration that it is speculated or was speculated would leave after the midterms. Um, Sessions was one of those. Again, to do it twelve hours after the midterm is pretty shocking. Um, the guy who is the new acting attorney general is a person who has written and talked openly about more or less ending the Mueller investigation. It's clear that, I mean, this is what Trump is doing, right? This is, he's wanting to bring an end to the Mueller investigation. That's the reason he has had an issue with Sessions from the beginning. So, I mean, I, I've, I've been thinking since since I saw this news this afternoon, trying to kind of piece together what his strategy is. And I, I don't, I sort of suspect that, um, I, it's possible that the Trump administration is really nervous because all of a sudden the House is going to have subpoena, but the Democrats are going to have subpoena power. There's a lot of stuff that's going to come out, I think, that hasn't that has been protected by a Republican-controlled House. Um, I, you know, he's got a lame, you know, a, a lame duck Congress that he's that he's he's. I don't know. I kind of wonder if he's trying to. I wouldn't be surprised if in the next month and a half there's that Mueller is gone, that, that mm-hmm. he just really pushes things through. And I don't know that that will be effective for him. I think that might backfire and unravel things. So I, I sort of think between now and January, it's, there's going to be a lot of stuff happening. Oh, yeah. The, the pace of it is going to be crazy. Yeah. I I don't know. Part of me is trying to, like Phil, figure out what the strategy is. So Bill had said earlier maybe this is sort of like a wag the dog kind of thing. Or maybe not wag the dog, but sort of like – 
hey, we're all distracted by the midterm results. I'm going to, like, fire the guy and, like, no one's going to talk about it well. And do a crazy, crazy press conference where everybody's oh going to be God. talking about all of the stuff oh in the God. press conference and forget that I fired the attorney general. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. but then he does the thing. and But, yeah, we have a podcast that we get to talk about. Yeah. So, um, I don't, I'm, you know, thinking about what's going to happen before the new Congress gets sworn in in January, that if Trump's goal is to try to get Mueller fired before that, then the 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 Democrats in Congress in the House still have the ability to subpoena Mueller. They still have right. the ability to investigate the firing of Mueller. And so right. I think to Phil's point, it could backfire to do it that way. It may be smarter to just let the Democrats sort of have Mueller in place still and do the things and see how it plays out. I think that the, that the White House should be more nervous about getting rid of Mueller before January than the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. Nick? I'm not convinced that he's going to do anything about it. I, I think this was, I think this is sending a message. I think this mm-hmm. create, like you were saying, Suzanne, it, it's, it's more of a political stalemate at this point. I, I think he likes the ability of having the option there, knowing that there's someone that could potentially, and is, is on record saying that he wouldn't like to bring an end to the investigation. Um, but now we have to contend with the Democrats. I, I, uh, I, I can't see him firing Mueller. I just can't. I, 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 it's since the beginning of this investigation, it's been we've talked. It's political suicide to do it, and now with the threat of further investigations and subpoenas and everything else that would follow that, it is such a detriment and such. It's just bad policy and bad strategy and bad optics. There's no upside Trump to it. Trump doesn't care about any of those things. Well, I mean, at some point he has to because this is this no, is either this doesn't. is make or break. <laughs> this is make or break it time, Bill. But, but here's the thing: like people said the same thing about firing Jeff Sessions. You can't Lindsey Graham, but he resigned. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think they said you, you can't fire the attorney general. That's a what did Lindsey Graham say? That's a red line or whatever. You, yeah, know, you yeah, can't yeah. do this. He just did it. Yeah. Now what? I think and he, Lindsey Graham wished him well. Exactly on the way right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I I I I agree with Phil here. I think it's going to happen quickly. I wouldn't be surprised if they move him out and Trump will just make his political argument and see who's going to respond. At that point, maybe the. Maybe the House moves towards impeachment, maybe, but he That's knows. So dumb. I know, I know, yeah. but he, so he knows he's protected, protected in the Senate. He knows the Democrats don't want to do this, so he forces their hand. Do they? Do they do this? And the Senate is going to save him. That's a good point. And this is the point where oh. he has more political capital in the Senate than any point. Right as time goes on, those individuals, some of the individuals, are going to be up for election. Yeah, so right is. now, this is, you hit right now. He's safer now than at any point. I I hope he doesn't do it. The only thing that gives me a little bit of faith is that Mueller has, knows about all of this, right? Yeah. Mueller is like 10 moves ahead of everybody, including this podcast. Um, <laughs> Hope he listens. And, and I think he's probably set himself up that even if Trump does move in that there's direction, he's going to be covered. But mm-hmm. no, I, I, I think there's going to be a lot of Mueller stuff, in the, both from Mueller and from Trump in the next yep. two weeks. Well, I think yeah. because of the pressure, Mueller's gonna, yeah. there's going to be a lot of stuff coming from his Already camp. He's been some, quiet for a while. Something came out today that said the Democrats have said it. I saw a headline in the Washington Post. The Democrats said that if Meyer gets followed, Mueller <laughs> gets fired. <laughs> Jesus, Suzanne. Um, that they're going to do televised hearings. Like the Ooh. House wants to have him in front of them we'll live on TV. Broadcast that. <laughs> I need all the popcorn. Just yes. like sit back and watch it all. Yeah. It's going to be amazing. It, it'll be interesting because Trump, I, I th- he's been itching to do this for yes. a mm-hmm. long time. And I, I think, yeah, you're you're right. I mean, before, if you fired Sessions um, with a one vote 
Republican uh, majority in in the Senate. One person, again, a Jeff Flake that gets, or a John Markowski. McCain gets yeah. picky about who is the replacement uh, attorney general. But now with a three seat, you know, uh, but, you know, yeah, I, I think I think things are going to unravel quick. All right. Go to the pre the predicted markets. Um, just start buying shares. Of <laughs> How long is so fired? Yeah. So oh. <laughs> this topic, we're going to hit this in the next few weeks because you know it's going to come back. So, all right, let's jump to Florida. So on Tuesday, Florida approved an amendment that automatically restores voting rights to more than a million people previously of previously convicted felonies. Uh, felons who finish their full sentences, including fines, probation, and parole, will now be allowed to vote in the state. The new law does not uh, apply to anyone convicted of murder or sex offenses. The amendment passed Tuesday uh, after exceeding the 60% threshold required to become law. The issue is not, not getting a ton of attention, but it's really fascinating and important topic. Phil, this means you'll finally be able to float, vote in Florida. <laughs> You're going to yeah. float in Wait, Florida. Wait, because he wasn't yes. convicted of those other things, so we're Right. Good. Just, okay. you know, no, his was more of like a llama-related incident. Attempted um, murder. It was attempted, attempted murder. murder. <laughs> right. Llama murder? Crime llama, yeah. Yeah, murder? yeah there's, llama, there's llama felonies, so. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about that off-air. <laughs> so, all right, Phil, you mentioned this off-air. You found this really fascinating topic, so why don't you start us off? I, I think this is maybe one of the biggest stories Agreed. of the night, um, and it's not getting... Uh, I mean, it's getting some coverage, but so I, first of all, I should say that I, I think this is great. Um, I've for a long time, I, you know, I, the idea of you commit a crime and you lose some of your rights, uh, until you've, you know, you've done your time, you've, you've paid your, your, um, you know, penance or whatever, and then you regain those rights. You get to re-enter the world, and and voting should be one of those rights you regain. I so I, I know that not everyone agrees with that, but I'm I'm happy to see it for that reason. Um, I thought it was fascinating. There were some of the statistics about this that like one out of every ten Floridians got regained the right to vote or something That's ridiculous. Like it was like a million and a yeah. half people. Mm -hmm. And another one, I, and I don't remember, I, this, I may be off on this, but another statistic I saw was something like 40% of African-American men in Florida. That, yeah. that is mind-boggling. Yeah. So Guess who they're going to anyway, vote for. Some of those, some of those statistics are, are shocking to me. But I, so I think it's a big story because I, I, I like it. But I also think it's a huge story because what you saw happen yesterday in Florida and what you've seen happen in presidential elections over and over is that Florida is an incredibly important state and an incredibly close state. Yeah. And so... Um, both governor and Senate races yesterday were within a, basically they were within a percentage point. Um, and you've just given a million and a half people a right to vote. And, and that that has the potential to dramatic. I mean, if you could instantly increase the population of any state by, you know, a million and a half people that immediately draws it brings into question what which way the Senate I mean, and, and I think a lot of people are assuming that the that uh, the people who regain the right to vote are likely to be Democratic voters, but we don't necessarily know that. Uh, although, um, it's a good bet. pretty strong, yeah. good bet. <laughs> but we don't know turnout. There's a lot of things we don't know. No, yeah, but, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think so. I think it's significant because if if you do have a, if a million and a half of the voters, if a million of them are Democratic leaning, that potentially alters the balance of power in Florida and in presidential elections. I mean, this I think makes. So whether you're whether you like that or not, I think this story is important because mm -hmm. of what it does to the potential political landscape of the country. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, this isn't the first state that did it. So Louisiana actually just did this recently, the same kind of thing, where and it was a push by two NFL players to play for the Saints to get the Louisiana to adopt a similar kind of measure. So I wonder if we're going to see this happening more and more. I mean, the states are all over the place with who gets to vote and who doesn't. If it's when they're in jail, out of jail, felony, not a felony, whatever it is. But because it's Florida. 
And because, as Phil said, Florida's so close and we're 2020s apparently around the corner, that there are a lot of political consequences for this. And I think, you know, we already know mobilization is critical. And so if these, if there's a group of newly re-enfranchised citizens that want to vote, then mobilizing this group is critical. And if, because most of them are people of color, we mo- mobilizing them in similar ways that we try to mobilize people of color. And, but it's also a tricky strategy because how do you go out and say like, I'm going to mobilize a bunch of felons, mm-hmm. right? I mean, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a balance that has to be had there, but Florida is Florida. And this could change things dramatically. That's huge. Mm-hmm. Nick? Yeah, I, I mean, it, it, the, when I heard about this story, it, it shocked me that this was, this was even a, a question. I, I mean, I, I understand. Realistically, it, to some extent, it, it bugs me that there are some restrictions on it. But you're, if you're an American citizen, you served your time for the crime that you committed, and you're deemed fit to return to society, or again, you've served your time, you, have, you should have every right to, you know, exercise your right to vote. It, it just, it boggles my mind. Um, I, this is one of those things where I, I don't have a problem with it in any way, shape, or form. This is, this is a fundamental thing, and if it's... I, I don't have anything else to say about yeah. it. Like yeah. there, 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 there should, be there no should just be no question yeah. about it. Yeah. What's the, interesting to me is that the, the divide between white America and black America on this. So having grown up in white America, and then I went down to teach at the University of Arkansas Little Rock, where a majority of my students were African Americans, and I suddenly realized how important this issue was. Mm-hmm. When you teach political science classes, this came up over and over and over again, and I was struck to say, like, I didn't even think this was really a concern. And then you see that, oh, it absolutely is. And mm-hmm. I, I think for the reasons Phil cited, this is, this is a really important democratic issue. Yes. Especially if, if you're of the philosophy that the more people who are citizens should be able to vote are voting. And, uh, yeah, I think it's great. Although we will see how it plays out in terms of the, the political process. Yeah. Well, that, that's, that's the part that's surprising to me. I'm surprised it passed. I, yeah. I take, yeah. It had to have 60% yes. support, I think. So in it's an election, a tremendous amount of Republican, support. Democrat. I, yeah, I was honestly, I, I'm pleasantly surprised, but I'm, I'm kind of shocked that oh, that 60% of the people who voted voted to do this. Mm-hmm. Which means that at least a percentage of the population set their partisan views aside to say yep. this feels right. like it is a right thing right. to do, sure. whether it's going to advantage or disadvantage me in the next election. Well, I goes back to the, sorry, that no, goes back to the, topic, the point we made earlier about how when issues are on the ballot, people tend to vote for issues that are like democratic issues. But when it comes That's to party, right. when you That's put the right. party label on it, it goes different. Yeah. Sorry, mm-hmm. Susanna. Yeah. No, no, you're hundred percent right. And the only thing I would add to that is that we are political scientists who understand the, the, the systemic racism issues that are at play here, right? That the people that are being re-enfranchised are mostly gonna be people of color. And so we realize that. I don't know that all the people that voted for it realized they were giving black people the right to vote again. Mm-hmm. A million. Quite, a million, <laughs> million of right, right. I'm just yeah. quite honestly. What yeah. did we do? Oh, crap. Can we try? <laughs> all right, hold on. Final topic here. Well, it's one day after the midterm, so we might as well begin speculating the 2020 presidential election. Yeah, we're gonna do it for the next exactly. two years. It's right around the corner. Specifically, I'm wondering about the prospects of some of the 
most prominent Democratic losers in the midterms, <laughs> particularly Beto O'Rourke, but also Stacey Abrams and Andrew Gillum. It's hard to downplay just how impressive Beto was in Texas. He lost, but this is Texas, Phil. It's Texas. And his efforts have the Democrats all abuzz about his presidential prospects. You might say he's too young, but he's only one year younger than Ted Cruz. This, is that right? I, I was yeah. shocked at this. Shocked. I would have never guessed Ted that. Cruz seems so old, yes. and Beto seems so young and dreamy. All right. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. That's right, Beto. Yeah, sorry. You might suggest he doesn't have the experience. Well, we've seen from Trump that experience isn't necessary to become president. So let's talk about the future prospects of our midterm losers. Suzanne, should Beto be the Democratic next presidential candidate? No. No. Oh. Do I have to say more than no? No. But I, yeah, no I'll, play, I mean, I'll play devil's advocate. I think yeah. the answer is no. Okay. Um, so being from you know from Texas originally, what what he did is remarkable. I think it's people are focusing on the fact that he lost, but he came really damn close yeah. in a state that Ted Cruz won last time by like 17 points. Um, he mobilized. So I think the thing about Beto is that he's very charismatic, and he ran a really really good campaign. Mm -hmm. And so we've talked earlier about how important it is for the Democrats to learn to play the game. And he he was really effective at that. And so I I'm not saying that he should run or that he's going to that he's going to run or that he's going to win. Um, uh, but I I do like the idea of some fresh younger blood in the Democratic Party. That's I don't want true. to see mm -hmm. yeah. a Joe Biden, Hillary Clinton. Um, I don't want to see that in the next. So so the <laughs> idea just had of, a physical oh reaction. God, I just got sober again. <laughs> I, if they want to run, that's fine. But I want to like it's I, I anyway. I, I think it's too early to dismiss him. I think he's I think he um, you know, there are going to be a number of young Democratic candidates. And, and we've seen that these are oftentimes pretty unpredictable how mm -hmm. these primaries go. And so um, anyway, I'm not that's I'm not necessarily saying that he has you know, I'm not saying he has my vote or anything, but I don't I don't know that I'm not as quick to to sort of dismiss it. Mm -hmm. Nick. You're just staring at me. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> I feel like I'm in class again. Um, no. Really? <laughs> he shouldn't be. No, I, I agree with Suzanne. I, there's no way he should run in 2020. Absolutely not. It's, it's I don't want to say cute. It's, um, it's, uh, it's interesting that he ran as good of a campaign as he did with having the level of experience that he did. I think with a few more years experience under his belt and kind of wading through that game playing that, you know, the major candidates will have done for decades at that point, that will put him in a significantly better position. Sure. I do think, yeah, he could be a very effective candidate uh, on a, on a larger stage at this point and trying to go up against Trump in 2020 I, I, I don't think he has the clout and kind of the more vicious mentality that his opponents will have at that point. Not only mm -hmm. Trump, but other Democratic opponents that will try and, you know, cut him out at the knees to sure. get above him. I, 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 yeah, it's, it's not the right time couple thoughts I, one i don't no. think he has, he has he should run right i mean you know you can lose a couple presidential primaries before you might you know suddenly hit it but the other thing is i can't think of another candidate i mean he ran for senate in texas but really his campaign was a national campaign he reached, yep. he reached out to people in all corners we were, our students in illinois mm -hmm. were beto fans yeah. Th that hasn't happened in any other race so he's he you know his experience is limited but i don't know i mean he's a smart guy 
In terms of debating Ted Cruz, I was really impressed at his sophistication, his ability to answer tough questions. I, you know, I, I'm on board. I think if this guy, I don't think there's any reason he shouldn't run. Uh, doesn't mean he's going to win, but it's not like the Democrats have a long list of really good candidates, right? I mean, but that's the point is that he is a good candidate, so he shouldn't run in 2020. Mm-hmm. Run again, Nixon. How many times did Nixon ran? Like, what, 10 times? Yeah, but. <laughs> Have that work out. I mean, and yeah, Mitt Romney won a bu- ran a bunch of times. And now sure. he's a senator from Utah. But when I summarily said no in 2020, it yeah. wasn't no never. It was no in 2020. Right. I just it feels to me like why do you have to wait till you're 50 to run for president of the United you States, to, right? Yeah. You have to be a rational actor, right? Mm-hmm. And here's what: so he has to be a rational actor, and he has to know that if he wants a good chance of winning, he has to wait till there's an open seat. And quite honestly, if the Democratic Party wants to anoint him as the next big thing, like they did Obama, mm-hmm. then they should tell him to wait till 2024. And what he does in the next in the next couple of years, six years, I don't know because he's not going to be in Congress anymore. So I does, have no idea what he's going to do in the next six years. Does he need another position? Yeah. Okay, so he needs to do something. I think he does, and I don't know. He can't run for governor of Texas because that just happened, so it's not going to be up. So I yeah. don't know exactly. There was a student in my class today said that he was reading something online that people thought that Better O'Rourke should be the new Speaker of the House <laughs> because you don't have to be a member of Congress uh, to be Speaker of the no. House. I was like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Well, <laughs> Cornyn's, Cornyn's seat is up in 2020, so he could run for oh, Senate again in two point. years. He could run. Um, that's, that's a good point. Uh, and he should. And Cornyn's not, I don't, I mean, he's not particularly well Not after the last but, couple of uh, months. So yeah. it's, it's an interesting question. I, I, I do think it's a unique moment. You've got I mean, it, for Democrats, it's important to, to dethrone Trump in 2020. And so to bring. Try. Yeah. To bring your best candidate. And if that's if that's Beto, I'm OK with that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Don't bet on him then. Yeah. <laughs> See I, I might. I might. Yeah. Oh, this was good. We didn't get to oh. talk about the ladies. We got we distracted. That's true. About Good. the fact that there are more women. First time there's been more than 100 women in the House of Representatives ever. Well, we don't have 100 yet. We don't know yet. Depends. No. There's still some Somebody who told me that. Oh, I'm Somebody sorry. There's... That lion piece, piece of crap told me that. Yeah, no, we're not at 100 yet. <laughs> not not from what I saw with the races that's still outstanding. But well, you just have to have me back and talk about that's it right. That's right. Maybe in January after <laughs> this right. morning. Oh boy, I'm so glad this is over. Midterms. <laughs> I'm so glad. Oh, <laughs> oh, and now we get to talk about the president for That's the next right. two yep. years. Yeah, there'll be some Mueller mixed in. Oh god. I oh, and there's like the world out there. That's too, right. 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 Bill yeah. Reminds us of we'll that. get back to international politics. Oh, thank you. yeah. There is the rest of the world. I forgot about that whole thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if you guys like the podcast, have questions, comments, beer suggestions. Uh, anything like that, uh, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul, Facebook at Barstool Politics. Um, beers that we try, Untapped, uh, iOS and Android. Look for our reviews on there. We are Barstool Politics. Um, podcast, uh, iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play Music, Stitcher, um, all of those major podcasting things. So look for us on there. You're listening to us, so I hope you can find us again, like I said at the beginning. Um, yeah, predicted. Uh, like we've been talking about for months now and then especially for the midterms and then with the uh the sessions um resignation um i'm just flipping through papers like it sounds like like i have something i'm just yeah (laughs) i have two pieces of paper in front of me um (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, check out Predict It, absolutely. Uh, a real money political prediction market where you can uh, buy and sell shares in future political events. Barstool Politics listeners, if you use the promo code, which I didn't actually give you at the beginning of the podcast, even though I talked about it, uh, if you, uh, you'll receive up a $20 match on your first deposit. So if you open up a $20 account, they will match that $20. Use the promo link, predictit.org slash promo slash barstoolpaul20 uh, to get your free money. I will tweet and Facebook that out. Yes. Anything else, guys? This was fun. Thanks, Suzanne. Thanks, Suzanne. Thanks yeah. for having me. I appreciate it. Appreciate it. Phil? Cheers. Yay. Cheers. Bye. <laughs>